गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय ठडालय कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय ताय नमो नम सो प्रणाम गुड मॉर्निंग एंड वी आर कंटिन्यू विद आवर सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स इन रादिकल पर्सनलिज्म टुडे वी आर इन लेक्चर नंबर एटीन वी विल बी स्टार्टिंग ए न्यू subserious new topic inside the main theme of radical personalism called divine ignorance this will extend throughout three lectures the next three weeks and the first part of it will be called can faith be nourished by doubt that will be today's topic but as usual first let's make a brief recap of what we saw last tuesday where we concluded our subserious on guru tattwa seventh part series of guru tattva and the last part was on a spiritual bypassing between guru and disciple where we started by introducing the notion of celebrity consciousness where a guru is worshiped basically like a rock star uh by very stereotyped disciples so to say due to the wrong reasons maybe the person has proper standing but the, he may be worshiped by external features such as money followers ashram nationality whatever material education and in some cases of course the disciple may be doing that but the, in some cases the guru may also be buying into celebrity consciousness so to say it's a very easy temptation to enter into for not only for someone being a guru for sure so in this narcissistic pattern both guru and disciples care little for anyone else apart from their idol in the case of the disciple or the guru cares little for apart from those or who is worshiping who are worshiping him or her from that particular pattern template of celebrity consciousness mm-hmm. and even in some cases even that's promoted or established as the standard that's how you should approach and deal mm-hmm. with this particular relationship in this connection sila sidamrash invoked this principle of intoxication of patsalya and how the guru sometimes can become over attached and partial to some disciples who praise him too much and lose sight of the feedback coming from peers or equals like friends brothers and sisters and the importance of that of course so of course we emphasize the importance of having brothers and sisters sharing feedback and peer review so to say in order to keep us as uh, sober as we can especially if one is serving in the capacity of guru from from celebrity consciousness then we turn into something that buries it can be an outcome of that which is cultism if you start with celebrity consciousness you can easily end up as a cult uh and a cult as we know is a, a very encapsulated self obsession so to say in the name of surrender mm-hmm. and all of we may have begun our path or practitioners with lots of innocence and integrity if we don't pay close attention we may end up misrepresenting the very essence of our, of our tradition in cultish terms mm-hmm. and from there we analyze the possibility of going from cultism to authoritarianism mm-hmm. where the foremost sin is disobedience so to say where there's an overemphasis on the leader and where uh, there's a considerable diminishment in the individual character of a disciple all which creates further alienation and disempowerment mm-hmm. the contrary of which will be radical personalism or essential basically emerging gaudi vaishnavism which is on the contrary totally empowering and unexploitable 
That's the idea, that each of us as members of this particular tradition can become not exploitable, but unexploitable. And then we concluded talking about how especially Guru can ex hold her express accountability in relation to seniors, to peers, but also even to students. Not only we can see the possibility of vertical accountability, but lateral one or horizontal accountability again, emphasizing the role of peers. And we also gave an example of one verse from Srila Bhaktivinotaku where he mentions that if a guru gives unreasonable instructions, then the disciple should not follow them and even in some cases should correct the guru. Because again, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who corrects whom. If both guru and disciples are sincerely invested in their relationship, both are genuine, both are truly uh, participating in the interaction, then both being corrected or correcting other, both will be seen as an aspect of nourishing that sacred bond. And we conclude then saying that despite being analyzing some undesirable, unexpected scenarios between guru and disciple and unaddressed ones, and that's why we made this series, uh, at the same time, we are not trying to, to diminish our faith in the guru principle or the relationship between guru and disciple in guru parampara and guru tattva, but actually share whatever we have shared in the service of such an ideal with full hope and faith that there's, of course, always place for bona fide representation of this principle of divine revelation. So let's continue with today's topic after this brief recap. And let's analyze a brief, a little bit, our title for today's talk. Again, Divine Ignorance Part 1, Can Faith Be Nourished by Doubt? What is the connection between this new series and the last one on Guru Tattva? Because... We first went through Guru Tattva because unless we have Guru Tattva in place and free from many of its usual misunderstandings, it will be difficult, not to say impossible, to, to engage in other topics such as the one we'll be sharing today and some others till the end of our series. Mm -hmm. So Guru is synonymous with knowledge, as you may know. You know that's the classical idea and role of the Guru, imparting sacred knowledge through precept, through example, through example. So the point is, if we have a proper understanding of Guru, and if we experience a proper representation of the principle of Sri Guru through the Vyasti Guru, through the agent Guru, all that will also show us hmm, that there's another form of knowing apart from the classical teaching direct imparting of Shastra, so to say, and that will be knowing through unknowing or what we will call in this particular series, divine ignorance. So we will try to unpack that today in the same way that we have tried to balance the diversity of individuation. Remember our series on that topic. We have tried to balance that diversity of individuation with the unity of non-dual thinking. Now we are trying to balance the direct knowledge and example given by Sri Guru with the unknowing the unknowledge, so the knowledge of unknowing <laughs> coming from the principle of divine ignorance, which is ideally to be provided also by Sri Guru and his grace. So in the next three classes, we'll be addressing, we'll be exploring what does it mean, this idea of divine ignorance, which may sound like an oxymoron for some. So we will addressing this notion from different angles, from different with different terminologies, from different, again, viewpoints, perspectives, at least in one way or another. So in one way we, in one way or another, so the topic can really sink into us. Mm 
we can some, somehow grasp what this principle is actually about. Mm? So we will be addressing the idea of divine ignorance, for example, from the perspective of our need to unlearn if we want to learn or the roles of doubt, as we will talk today in growing our faith or the importance of darkness and mystery in our inner journey of light, so to say, uh, or the importance of coexisting, coexisting with principles like uncertainty instead of embracing a constant sense of certainty and so on. I think you, you are starting to realize in which direction all this will take place. Many of these topics, I remember we mentioned them somehow briefly in a lecture given a few months ago last year called What Shines in the Darkness, for those who would like to take some further reference. So in this three-part series, we will be unpacking some of its further implications. So let's go to the first section after this brief introduction. And we will be, call, we will be talking to begin with about the goal is uncertainty, not certainty. Remember, for main topic today is can faith be nourished by doubt? So we will be navigating all these apparent paradoxes and contradictions and trying to properly integrate them. And again, Guru is to embody and exemplify this principle of harmony and integration. So let's begin by sharing a few words about the goal is uncertainty, not certainty. So again, in connection to the last series on Guru Tattva, we mentioned how the role of the Guru is to remain outside of the comfort zone, embracing the unknown, inhabiting that liminal space, so to say, this threshold-like area. And from that space where we actual realizations come, from that place, the Guru has to gradually make his disciples also inhabitants of such a land of unknown, and gradually instructing them. And part of that instruction, basically, will be to teach the disciples how to embrace darkness, mystery, uncertainty, to balance all the certainty, all that they know, all that they have clearly received from the Guru, so the disciples can remain open to the principle of wonder and, and the principle of ongoing discovery that only happens when you don't know some things and you are aware of that. So while the Guru has to give clear answers, for sure, that's part of his role, sometimes the Guru has to also create new doubts, higher doubts, we may say, in that it's in his disciples. That's part of the role of the Guru. And how does the Guru will do that? Sometimes by not giving predictable answers, for example, and creating new questions by new answers in the, in the hearts, minds of his disciples. And, for, and through that, the Guru will be instructing and showing his students Krishna Bhakti is unlimited. Never think that you have already understood it all. There, you should be very careful not to take Krishna Bhakti for granted. So that's a part of the role of the Guru, to disturb, so to say, the students in a sacred way. Because if you have too much certainty, too much clarity, you become too much sure of something, and we are dealing with the infinite. So there's there has to be a constant pinching, so to say, poking uh, for us to not become fully accustomed to remain in the comfort zone of this so-called certainty, conceptual certainty. And what disturbs someone's faith may nourish someone else, some other's faith. That's an important principle. In some cases, someone may ask, so who is wrong, the one who is disturbed or the one who is nourished by that same point? And 
the answer is not necessarily any of them. Each of them is in a particular stage. I remember when I wrote my first book, some people was somehow accusing me <laughs> that I was disturbing the faith of some people about what I was writing them there. But many others were very inspired with it. So it was a very particular scenario. So what to do? Was there a wrong part or a correct part? Not necessarily. One group was right, the other was totally wrong. Not necessarily. Again, but instead one should see why people is disturbed or why people is inspired. Now, the fact that I'm disturbed, the fact that I'm inspired doesn't necessarily tell that I'm correct, basically, that I'm in the right in my right place. You might be inspired for the right reasons, but also you may be inspired for the wrong reasons. Or you may be disturbed for the right reasons in a sacred way, or you may be disturbed for the wrong reasons as well. So it doesn't have to do with what's going on outside of ourselves, but from which place we are taking and processing that particular experience. So in relation to why people, when I say people, we I include myself there, all of us, <laughs> we get upset sometimes when our beliefs are challenged, which is again part of the role of the guru toward the disciple in a sustainable, healthy way. The idea of cognitive dissonance comes to my mind. So I'd like to share a brief definition of it. What's cognitive dissonance? So it's basically a mental conflict that occurs when, which, when beliefs are contradicted by new information. You, are, you went to a place of certainty, and some new information comes that takes you outside of that some comfort zone. So this mental conflict activates areas of the brain that are involved, how to say, with personal identity and emotional response to threats in certain particular areas. So the alarms in the brain will go off when a person feels threatened. Try to think of situations where you felt like that. When you feel threatened on a deeply personal level, on an emotional level, not even physical, even worse, so to say, so that causes the person to shut down and disregard any evidence, as rational as it may be, as logical as it may be, any evidence that contradicts what they have previously regarded as truth will be rejected. So that's basically cognitive dissonance. And that's why it's so important to have Bisrambo in the Guru, to have deep faith and confidence, because if not, the Guru will, will be sharing the things that put you out of the comfort zone. And if you are not open to, to that, you may be feeling that my guru is killing me, basically, because there's so much threat according to this cognitive dissonance principle. Mm -hmm. But again, this sacred disturbance has to be there. Mm -hmm. So in part, at least in part, this sacred disturbance is the role of the guru. Mm -hmm. And the role of the disciple is to allow that to happen, to, to allow their faith to be nourished by creating new doubts, allowing new doubts. And, and the guru in that way will keep the students in a constant ongoing state of openness, of wonder, of humility. I never, I do not know everything. And of sincere inquiry. Pariprasnena, as the Gita says. Our role as disciples is to inquire sincerely, not only once, initially, but forever, students forever. Carl Jung will say in that connection, what in the morning was true will at evening have become a lie. Like implying this idea of Bhaktivinotaku will say similarly, today's perfection is tomorrow's imperfection. So constantly there is this space for growth and progress and deeper inquiry. So it is the duty of the disciple to embrace such invitation from the guru 
and it's, a guru, it's the duty of the guru to extend that invitation, even if cognitive dissonance comes our way and all this defensive mechanism and things that may appear, they gradually need to be dismantled, deconstructed, so we can remain in that permanent teachable moment, so to say. So in opposition to this template, which again is part of the ideal of, between guru and disciple, and remember we are somehow bridging our previous series with today's, with this one. In opposition to this template, many of us, unfortunately, on some level, at least or another, many of us still worshiped workability or predictability instead of unpredictability. So many of us still love to receive answers, but not questions. As, a, as disciples, we'll want certainty, clarity. And it's understandable. There's a stage for that. Again, we are not condemning those who may need that because that may correspond with their stage. But there are some other stages where something else will be required. So many of us will love to receive answers, but not questions. Or many of us, those who serve as gurus, may get used to give answers. Hmm? to every question, to feel I know every answer to every question and so on. So that will take away a natural humility in those cases hmm? uh, that a guru, a teacher should retain. A guru should be more than even the disciple aware and open how much more there is to learn, to discover, to realize. But unfortunately, even in fact, sometimes we may create circumstances in which we know the whole circumstance will revolve and be arranged, so to say, in such a way that it all converges in a, I know. Mm. Circumstances in which we have an absolute right to certitude, so to say, where there is no vulnerability left. Try to think about that. Mm. If you have an absolute right to certitude, you cannot be vulnerable. There is no place to express that. Everything is clear, certain, absolute. Mm. So what's a faith without vulnerability? What's a faith that only has certitude mm, as it's quote-unquote essence, a faith without vulnerability becomes something basically useless mm -hmm. because it's another way of keeping the ego in control. No need to be vulnerable, no need to embrace uncertainty. And now the ego is keeping in control, but this guy is sacred in the form of externally, quote-unquote, faith certainty. But as we will see, faith is not synonymous with certainty. <laughs> so in these cases where we are more attached to creative circumstances in which we know we promote certainty, we'll be loving what we may call closure. Everything closes in a certain way while thinking we are people of faith. We may cheat ourselves in that way. For many of us, actually, to think I have faith means I'm right. Try to be introspective about that because that can very easily enter into our system. I have faith. I am right. Think about it. Again, this is the ego. The ego needs to feel superior. The ego needs to feel separate from others. So this I'm right creates that particular pedestal, imaginary pedestal in our minds. So in this connection, we can also make a clear distinction between faith. We are talking about faith. Real faith is vulnerable, is open to uncertainty and so on. And belief. Because in general practice, belief has come to mean a state of mind which is almost the opposite of faith. Mm -hmm. I, will, I will address these two words from a particular perspective. Faith, belief, belief, sorry, I say I'm using the word here. Belief has more to do with the insistence that the truth is what one will wish it to be. And I believe this, and it has more to do that 
I would like to believe things are like that. I want things to be like that. I believe in this. But faith is allowing, opening ourselves to embrace reality as it is, not as I would like it to be. Let me share an interesting quote by Alan Watts in this connection between the difference between faith and belief as we have defined them. So he says, the believer will open his mind to the truth on the condition that it fits in with his preconceived ideas and wishes. Faith, on the other hand, is an unreserved opening of the mind to the truth, whatever it may turn out to be. Faith has no preconceptions. It is a plunge into the unknown. Belief clings, but faith lets go. In the sense of the word, faith is the essential virtue of science, and likewise of any religion that is not self-deception. So again, faith is, by contrast to this idea of belief, which is again an ego control mechanism, by contrast, faith is a constant openness to uncertainty. So don't lose sight of the main topic today, if faith can be nourished by doubt. Another way to say doubt is uncertainty in this case. So faith is a constant openness to uncertainty. Uncertainty is an element of faith, a necessary one. As we will say, doubt is an element of faith, as Paul Tillich will say. And by contrast, one of the main dangers, as we already mentioned, for any practitioner is in time to take up to end up concluding Krishna Bhakti, Krishna consciousness. I'm taking that for granted. I already know what's that about. I get accustomed of to, to the extraordinary, in other words. Let's reflect how much we are not falling into that at present. We take Krishna consciousness for granted. I know what's Prashad, I know what's the guru, I know what's the name of Krishna. I, we have all these official definitions in our mind that we could regurgitate if someone asked us about that, all the formulaic one-liners or whatever, but that doesn't mean that that is all that it is. Mm -hmm. So we may take Krishna consciousness for granted and thus get accustomed to the extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And that's not the idea. The extraordinary is always to remain extraordinary. It's not something to be a, get accustomed in really to. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we may go through our spiritual honeymoon and everyone, everything will be extraordinary, and that's it should be. But after the honeymoon, unfortunately, sometimes we gradually become stagnated in a certain status quo, in a certain comfort zone, in a certain conceptual status quo. I'm supposed to think like that, to reply to that question like this. And we even inadvertently become attached to predictable answers, to predictable formulas, instead of cultivating, again, a permanent sense of wonder, a permanent sense of awe. Tamatkar rasa. Rasa sar tamatkar, the scriptures say. The essence of rasa is tamatkar, this astonishment, this experience, permanent, ongoing sense of astonishment and wonder and awe, which is what keeps us in a constant stage of transformation, evolution, in a liquid state of flow and growing. And that's, it should be like that because that's the nature of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. That's the nature of Krishna Bhakti. That's the nature of reality. There is a richness, there is a complexity in reality that is completely inexhaustible. 
And Krishna Bhakti is not ex an exception to that rule. In fact, for us Gaudis, Krishna Bhakti is the very essence of that rule. For, for us, Krishna Bhakti is the very essence of reality. So reality is inexhaustible. Gaudiya Vaishnavism must be so as well. But how much we are having in daily experience of that, the inexhaustibility of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So as we mentioned in relation to Guru Tattva, the role of a genuine guru, again, is not to be an to give an overdose of certitude, an overdose of toxic security, comfort zone through predictable answers, because everything becomes in time boring. Everything becomes completely predictable, completely controllable. And that's boring. That's not reality. That's not how love moves, as we will see. So the role of the guru is not that. The role of the guru is to train the student to enter the land of uncertainty to excavate it. It's a whole excavation project and to make ongoing discoveries by himself with the support of the guru and divine grace, but nonetheless by himself. We are to enter our own experience. It's a voluntary choice and effort. So this is reality. This is how Krishna consciousness works. By contrast, if we choose to avoid this, we may enter into some form of utopia, some imagine, imagined, over-imagined, over-idealized idea of how things should be, but that's not what reality is. And these utopian visions of perfection that many of us may have, most of them are profoundly inhuman, if you pay attention. They are extremely out of touch with how reality actually works. And again, we may have utopian notions in connection to our practice, to the goal of our practice, to how things should be and happen even in eternity. We may not be aware of that, but that may happen. And all of that may be in the context of 100% static certainty, everything fixed, everything controllable, instead of an optimal amount of uncertainty. Not an overdose of uncertainty, but an optimal amount that can balance the whole equation. And again, we Gaudias are not after utopia. Utopia means a, perf a place where everything is perfect, where everything is certain, according to our wish. Actually, an utopia, by its very definition, does not exist. It's not something possible, plausible. So let's be very careful about... Uh, embracing an overdose of certainty and, did, and thus developing a whole utopian uh, psychology while trying to embrace spirituality. Mm -hmm. We, especially as Gaudias, we are after a form of perfection that not only finds itself in a constant state of movement and eternal becoming, as we call it sometimes, but also in that eternal becoming, our ultimate po converging point in Golok even allows imperfection. And even on top of that, <laughs> uh, this the ultimate reality is deeply nourished by imperfection. That's what we find in Braj, in the Krishna Lila. That's how love moves unpredictable. That's love moves unpredictably. Hari Bhagati Primna, Shabhavakuti Labhavit. Love moves like a snake, means in a zigzag way, not in a straight line, in a predictable line. Therefore, if love moves unpredictable, Love requires the presence of uncertainty. That's a feature of love. And our goal is love. The goal is to not be to be comfortable not knowing it all. 
the goal, the ultimate goal includes loss of uncertainty, means I don't know some things. For eternity, that's our goal, to be comfortable not knowing. Especially in Braj, they don't even know that Krishna is God. Instead of being certain about everything, which sometimes is what we are trying to do on a daily basis and think, whenever that happens, I'll be happy. That's the goal of life, that I can be certain about everything. That, which is another way of saying everything will be under my grip, grip under my control. But by contrast, we could say again, our final ignorance is to imagine that our destiny is conceivable. And we, we may be indulging in that final ignorance that we should avoid. Hmm? To imagine my final destiny is totally conceivable, hmm? totally controllable. That's not the ultimate goal that actual Gaudiya Vaishnavism is pointing to. So we should be careful because if we have all these misconceptions in our mind, we are practicing with that notion in mind and that notion won't take us to the actual destiny that we think we are going. We may be going somewhere else. But unfortunately, again, many of us Gaudias have erected, not only Gaudias, of course, but we are here addressing mostly our Gaudia community. Many of us Gaudias have erected a whole, how to say, our a big wall, our understanding of our tradition around the principle of certainty. Many of us have done that. My practice, my understanding, my reality as a Krishna Bhakta, all is surrounded by a big, thick wall of certitude. And that's a danger of belonging to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, in which sense, because we have such a detailed description of who God is, all the different faces, what's the lila, which are all the details of his love life and transcendence. So we have so much detail that we, we may very easily end up being very sure, I know everything about God. I'm very certain about who God is, what does he do. Uh, even in some cases, the devotees have their details about who they are in that particular lila. They're receiving that information. Mm -hmm. So my point is, in those cases, if you become too much attached to knowing a lot, um, forgetting that you st still unknow more than what we, you know, in those cases, there will be no much place left for uncertainty, for mystery, for all that actually is happening there over and over again on a daily basis. So in time, if there is no place for any form of doubt that may refine our certitude, that scenario will tend to become arrogant to think we know better than anyone else. It will tend to become rigid we know everything we need to know. It will tend to become fundamentalist at the end of the day. There is no need to learn from anyone. So all that can happen and has happened and is happening in the Gaudiya Vaishnavism as well as other traditions, of course. But again, we should be especially careful because we have so much information about transcendence, but information doesn't necessarily imply transformation. Once Mark Twain say in this connection, he say, it's not what we don't know that gets us in trouble. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. That's an important point. Sometimes we think, oh, we don't know enough, so we have to know more, and we will be free from trouble. But what about knowing a lot, but through that knowing, missing the point of how much you, don't, you still don't know, how much would you know 
you are not knowing that so perfectly. That's the real trouble. As you may know, these last months, I mean, for my whole life, but especially this last month, half a year, I've been quite uh, doing some in-depth study of mystical Christianity as part of my uh, inner practice in connection, of course, to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, uh, interfaith dialogue and so on, interfaith dialogue. And there's something very interesting because mystical Christianity, they, of course, make an emphasis of God being loving and beautiful and so on. But also they really emphasize the idea of God being unknown and unknowable. And that's an interesting idea because, again, we go, as I mentioned, know so much about Krishna's personal life, about Mahaprabhu's, Astakaliya Lila, what they do at every single time of their day. <laughs> and that's indeed a blessing and that's beautiful, but it can also be a curse if we don't know how to deal with that, with the proper, again, humility. So we may end up thinking we already go know God. These other guys from other traditions do not know who God is. They say this unknown but we know. But actually, we will always be ignoring more than what we can possibly know about the infinite. I mean, just put bring the idea of infinite into, into, into the table. How much you can dare to, to claim that you know the infinite? He himself is still knowing himself and his eternal becoming. And again, this dangerous conviction, I know the infinite, we may not say it overtly, but we may be enacting that unconsciously. This can take us to very different forms of elite security, where we validate our own personal situation by the mere fact of belonging to a particular line who knows more about God than others. So I don't need, I'm, I'm, I'm correct just because of belonging to that group, which is another variety of comfort zone, a theological comfort zone, philosophical comfort zone, so many ways of remaining in the comfort zone. But again, infinity, by its very definition, is not graspable, fully graspable. That's the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality could be defined like it's too self-evident to doubt, but it's too deep to comprehend. In one sense, it's self-effulgent, self-manifesting, self-confirming. All of us, each of us have had our own epiphanies through which we have had a very clear experience. Okay, the ultimate reality exists, but it's too deep to comprehend. Again, too self-evident to doubt. I won't dare to deny the existence of God, but it's too deep to dare to say, I understand it all. In other words, we cannot deny the absolute, but we can never fully apprehend it. Remember, the absolute is not an object for our apprehension apprehension, whatever, our control. <laughs> but actually, that shouldn't be a problem. That's actually our hope. Mm -hmm. Because in that, that creates a constant state of uncomprehensiveness, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, and that will keep us in a permanent mood of constant discovery and astonishment and rediscovery students forever. Again, that's how the whole Lila is uh, refreshing itself, updating itself, upgrading itself on a daily basis. And nobody's boring doing the same thing for eternity. Bhakti Notakura say to make comfort lamps, his, that's his main service in his Siddha Deha for eternity. How, how long you can make comfort lamps without going crazy? After a few hours, you are just wanting something else because we don't have the capacity of, 
actualizing that same situation into new layers of purpose and meaning, but that's going on in the eternal reality. And of course, just in case, a brief disclaimer here, what we are talking here in this particular series is not a campaign against knowledge, against knowing, or against using our intellect at all. Actually, it's the very opposite of that, because by properly embracing uncertainty, we basically remain open to know unlimitedly, to know more and more and more. Remember, our subject matter of study is infinity itself. But if you remain addicted to certainty, our spam of knowing becomes more and more limited. You follow my point? Because you can never fully grasp infinity. So if you think, I already know everything, you basically know nothing. So openness to uncertainty opens the door for permanent knowing and discovery. So this ignorance, remember we are talking about divine ignorance, this form of unknowing or ignorance is a total precondition to actual wisdom. If we want to become wise sages, as we should, <laughs> uh, ignorance is a precondition, a pre preliminary foundation to that. And the Bible says it very interestingly. It says, make no mistake about it. If any of you think of yourselves as wise, you must learn to be ignorant first, and then you can become wise. So before knowing, know that you don't know basically, like Socrates said, he was a very wise person and he basically concluded saying, the only thing I know is that I don't know. But he really meant it. He really had an insight. His words had carried some weight, content. So we have to get to that point when we realize, I know so many things, but in comparison to what I don't know and to how much I know what I know, what I think I know, I can only conclude that I don't know. And that's that's something important to know, that you don't know. So in other words, it takes a lot of learning to finally learn ignorance. Although it may sound a contradiction, you have to learn ignorance. In Latin, they call docta ignorantia, or learned ignorance. Well, while learning, when learning understands its own limit. You are learning, but there's a limit to our capacity and there's so much more out there. And this is not merely limited to the realm of spirituality or religion, but it even applies to science and other secular disciplines where awe, chamatkar, astonishment uh, is, con is a constant in relation to the natural world. We'll be continuing talking on this in, in the next class, how this plays out even in the realm of secularity and a proper scientist will remain in, con in a constant state of rediscovery by the very nature of reality. Mm -hmm. So again, needless to say, we need to know certain things. We are not here against certitude uh, because to have absolute uncertainty about everything on every single level may be quite overwhelming <laughs> for most of us. Maybe probably a paranoid experience, maybe too much. But especially in relation to the absolute, to the ultimate reality, like Srila Siddharmaraj would like to say, there is no limit in how much progress we can make. And that's the price to pay if you want to relate with infinity. If you want to approach the infinite, means there's no limit to progress, which means you can never claim 
I, I made the progress because whatever you have made, there's so much more to do. There's always room for improvement and growth and you continue in that state forever. There's never a moment that you can assert yourself. Absolutely, there's no place for ego in that sense. So you, we should remain so always open, allowing uncertainty, so to say, to put certainty in its proper place, allowing uncertainty to humble certainty whatever we may be certain of. And of course, this sounds beautiful. This may sound even poetic to some. It's a beautiful poetic prospect, but at the same time, it's pretty intimidating, probably. So why? Let's, let's think a little bit why this prospect of eternal unknowing and embrace of paradox and uncertainty sounds so intimidating and uncomfortable. So there, are, there may be many reasons for sure. One of them that comes to mind, in the words of Mother Luther King Jr., he'll say that most people's loyalties are with security, public image, and the comforts of the status quo. So most of us are express loyalty in those directions, which all of them have to do with comfort zone. Again, security, personal image, public image, and comforts of the status quo. Most of them are loyal to that. Mm? Tribe validation and so on. Mm? In other words, as Srila Prabhupada says something similar, most people join any group, including ours, because of these reasons, because of want to be validated by the environment and receive the security. And again, there is place for that in the beginning and eventually we should out outgrow that. Srila Prabhupada, in his words, will say some people come to Krishna consciousness to serve Krishna consciousness. Some people come to Krishna consciousness to be served by Krishna consciousness. So even if we are in the latter case, we should gradually evolve to the former. In other, in other words, or in other cases, <laughs> some people may join initially with a sincere inquiry, even that can happen, but gradually get trapped by these interests, public image, social comfort, and so on. And they may choose voluntarily, consciously to remain in that comfort zone in the name of chastity, loyalty, faith, surrender, may invoking a facade of all that to keep one's loyalties in place. So yes, whatever threatens to take us out of that comfort zone, like the things we are talking about today, that may be experienced as terrifying, basically, to say the least. Although it may show it externally, it may show itself externally as deep faith and surrender. But again, yes, you're having this faith to the status quo. You're having this faith to your own loyalties in connection to your public image or comfort zone. So in those cases, instead of a deep committed faith, in this case, we will have actually an absolute fear mm, of losing the above so-called perks. Mm. So externally, we may end up showing an apparent display of strong faith and absolute certainty, while the underlying foundation of that external expression will be a total unwillingness to leave the comfort zone, total unwillingness to inhabit the land of uncertainty, uh, and therefore an abundance of inner fear because of not wanting to go there. So it's interesting because if this fear that will be prompting these attitudes is tied to the idea of certainty, externally I show certainty, so I don't acknowledge my inner fear. 
So if fear is close tied to certainty, and fear is generally understood as the opposite of faith, then we could say the opposite of faith will be certainty, because fear and certainty are expressed in this type of connection, and faith is the opposite of fear. So we could say certainty is the opposite of faith. So let's try to unpack this notion next in the next section. The opposite of faith is certainty, as contradictory as it may sound, as counterintuitive as it may sound. The opposite of faith is certainty. In other words, if we, to excessively insist on being certain about everything has little to do with the realm of faith, as we already talked about. Faith is more an openness to reality and to whatever it has to unpack and unfold. So to insist too much, to, to express an overdose of certitude has nothing to do with the realm of faith. And faith is deeply tied with mystery, with darkness, and yes, with uncertainty. Without doubt, uncertainty, and unknowing are all crucial aspects of our inner faith and journey. It's important that we think ourselves, what is our understanding of faith? How much that understanding is including all these crucial elements of uncertainty and so on. Only a person, we could say, that is blessed by Shraddha Devi, the very personification of faith, only such person will be able to follow the traces of doubt, if you want to put it like that. Hmm? Something that would will lead us to a deeper understanding of the absolute. Srila Siddharth will say that also. He will speak usually of how deep doubts hmm, and complete faith are always belonging together, belonging to one another. They are not hmm, contrary to each other. You, they can even be called synonymous, if you will. Deep doubts, complete faith, how they can coexist. If we do not, if we don't embrace this understanding, this capacity to integrate apparent contradictions, then our so-called faith will gradually become our worst enemy instead of our best friend. A black and white faith, a very two-dimensional, one-dimensional faith. So I'll repeat it just in case. Certitude is the antithesis of faith. Or, in other words, as paradoxical as it may sound, doubt and, doubt and faith are correlative terms. Hmm? Pay, pay attention to what's going on inside of you when hearing these words <laughs> and try to elaborate on that internally, eventually. Hmm? If you need to put, pause here and reflect on that, pray for that right and that, do whatever you need, no problem. So in other words, our faith can and should hmm, progress through the wings, so to say, of doubt and uncertainty. Those two are there to nourish our faith. So today's title was, Can Faith Be Nourished by Doubt? And of course, the answer is yes. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Mm -hmm. Doubt is a very crucial nourisher to our faith journey. And a specific type of doubts, of course, as we will see. So, in fact, we could say that. No, we could say that if you want to be sure about something, the only thing that we can be absolutely sure, absolutely certain in our spiritual journey is that whatever we are expecting to happen will not happen. <laughs> you can be sure like that. You try to imagine how your day will go on today and make a perfect 
detailed description. And I think you will agree with me that it will never happen like that. It may happen on a certain level like that, but never will happen exactly like that. So you can be certain about uncertainty. <laughs> because if you think that things are going to proceed according to your understanding, to your so-called sweet will, then Krishna will reverse the normal order for your benefit. That's how it happens. That's how Krishna many times uh, showers us with his mercy, reversing the normal order, breaking predictability, invoking uncertainty. So we lose control and we realize that we never had that control actually. And we can be humble and realize who we actually are and who he is and what's our relationship with him. So, of course, an argument in this connection, in, this, in relation to the idea of faith of doubt being nourisher, a nourisher to faith, an, an, an argument, so to say, in this connection or a question could be that Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is mentioning that that person who doubts is not happy in this lifetime nor the other. So how can you say that doubts are nourishing faith? That is important to understand which type of doubts Sri Krishna Bhagavan is addressing there. So here's here's they're referring there he's referring to unhealthy doubts, the skeptic doubts, the, that, that person who only doubts for the sake of further doubting, so to say. Not in the context of nourishing mystery of faith and embracing uncertainty in the spirit of eternal growth. So Krishna is not speaking here about those in whom doubts play the sacred role to nourish faith and mystical experience. So it's important to make the difference. Therefore, doubt and uncertainty, again, can and should nourish our abhisar. Abhisar means love journey, our love journey towards the absolute. Again, however, unfortunately, many of us, <laughs> few of us, not many of us, Few of us, many of us don't want to go to that place. Few of us go to that place willingly. In most cases, we are thrown there by force of circumstance, by the, the actual necessity we have. So it's interesting because we need so much to go there. But for some reason, we are, ironically, we are afraid of the things that we must want. And we must, at least we must need. Hmm? So gradually, spiritual practice has to do with stopping contradicting ourselves that much. <laughs> Decreasing the degree of self-embarrassment or whatever. So since we invoke the term Abhisar, which means love journey, let's speak about it for a minute because it's a very interesting notion of how that plays out in connection to today's topic. Uh, in connection to a classic example in Gaudiya Vaishnavism of this idea of Abhisar of love journey, which is the gopis running to meet Krishna in Rasa Lila on a daily basis, the love journey. Krishna is playing his flute. Everything is uncertain for the gopis because they hear the flute in the distance. And Krishna, everything is dark, again, uncertain. Krishna is a dark lord. They hear the flute in the, played in the dark night. There's a dark prospect in the sense, uncertain prospect, because the gopis are not sure if they will be able to sort out all the obstacles on their way to meet Krishna, to join Krishna. But they are risking all that. So much darkness, so much uncertainty but they are taking risk for their ideal. And that uncertainty is actually nourishing their longing, the gopis' love for Hari. And interestingly, the gopis, regarding the idea of divine ignorance, the gopis never wanted to understand Krishna, to know Krishna through understanding, but to love Krishna, to serve him. And that's really to know him. 
To love him is to know him. Like in the famous mystical Christian treatise called The Cloud of Unknowing, which is another name for Krishna. We could say Krishna, the name of Krishna is Gyanasham. Gyanam is cloud and Sham is dark, the dark cloud, the cloud of unknowing. <laughs> so this book, the Christian one, says, interestingly, says, God is that person who cannot be thought but loved. So you cannot think God. You can love God. That's the Gyan Sunya Bhakti of Braj, the brain death bhakti in the words of Srila Siddha Maharaj. But they are in so much divine ignorance and sacred unknowing, they even ignore the fact that Krishna is Bhagavan. But they love him so much, so they know him so much from that particular side. So this Rasa Lila, who is the zenith, of course, of all Lilas as we know, is clearly depicting this principle of divine ignorance that we are referring to in this through the title of this series. And as we usually say, Rasalila is a sacred dance, circular dance. It's not a mere survival dance, as Bill Plotkin will put it. Survival dance means we are moving out of instinct, out of fear, trying to protect our certitudes, again, our loyalties, our securities, our position. What we think we know, what we think is ours, that's survival dance. We are running in life uh, against life's actual call. Actual call means to join a sacred dance, not a survival dance. Krishna's flute call represents the call of life. But in survival dance, we are escaping from Krishna's flute call. And we are creating for ourselves unending excuses not to change, not to mature, not to transition to the next level, not to join to join the sacred dance, the further call of the flute. So in other words, this through this survival dance, so to say that we are doing in this samsara, <laughs> we end up escaping from that process that is teaching us how to nourish our faith through challenge, as the gopis are showing, through complexity, even through doubt. That's the sacred dance we have to dance, we have to join, we have to enter into, we have to allow our love journey, our avisar, to be nourished by darkness, by uncertainty, and so on. So on one side, we have this tribal thinking and insecurity, the survival dance. And on the other side, we have the sacred dance, the example that the gopis are given in the Rasa Lila. One is the exact opposite of the other. When we are on this tribal level, survival level, we just want to be right. You, have, you want to know you are right. You, we want to hold ourselves to a safe post so in, because of fear, because of need for security. And we don't want to expose ourselves to any form of unknowing. Mm. But the point is that the, the majority of the mystery uh, of God lies there mm, in unknowing, in darkness, in the realm of uncertainty. That's where you can learn something new <laughs> and feel that life has purpose, meaning, and makes sense. And so therefore, in this Rasa Lila, the gopis are teaching us <coughs> by example all these principles. They are embodying this divine ignorance, this most valuable lesson. They are running into that darkness, running without a second thought, a first thought, running into that mystery. Again, without even thinking about it twice, without even thinking about it even once. The Gyan Sunya Bhakti, no thinking process, just heart carry it. Mm. Embracing the unknown, 
to attain the highest form of knowledge, which is divine love. So as counterintuitive as it may sound to us yet in our particular situation, that's how all sacred things are actually understood and embraced through paradox, through the principle of apparent contradiction that actually can be integrated in a higher synthesis. In this connection comes to mind a very nice quote from another great mentor and inspiration, Thomas Merton, another hero of the unknown, so to say. And he will say famously, I pray not so much to receive from God circumstances according to my capacities, but I pray to him to receive capacities according to the circumstances. So that's basically, keep Rasalila in mind. That's basically the spirit here. I don't want circumstances that serve and adjust wherever I'm at present, but I want to develop capacities to adjust, honor, and serve the circumstances that are coming, which are properly unknown, new, that need me a further need for me a further upgrade. So this type of example, this prayer of Thomas Merton, is makes the point: the environment doesn't have to adapt to us. We have heard this 108 times, so we may probably need to hear it 16,108 times and maybe more. We should be willing to constantly adapt to the environment, knowing that there will be disconcerting tests. and But that uncertainty, we can call it disconcertainty, <laughs> will be a crucial part of our Abhisar, of our love journey. We are on a love journey. Gaudiya Vaishnavism is a love journey. And by contrast, again, we could say that if the path before us is absolutely clear, clear, completely certain, probably we are on, on someone else's path, not on ours. And that's why we may want to continue that. But what does Krishna says in the Gita? If you thread someone else's path, that's not correct. Better you thread your own path in a wrong way, in a messy way, in an uncertain way. That's your path. Now, instead of going to someone else's path and everything is nice, perfect, predictable, certain, but that's not your path. So what's the value of that? So let's continue with one last section, if you give me a little bit, a few minutes. We're almost there. Where we will continue unfolding this topic, we'll be talking about how addiction to certitude implies competing with God. So a brief further unpacking of the implications of this idea of certitude mm-hmm. as a contrast to faith, as a contrast to holy existence. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. again, one of the majors, major heresies, we could say, of many Gaudiya practitioners, and of course, of many members of any other tradition as well, one of those major heresies is that we have largely turned, as we have mentioned already, the very meaning of faith into its exact opposite which is an obsessed quest for absolute certainty and security. So that's a big disservice to our tradition and ideal because faith is everything for us. It's our very deity. So what if we turn faith into its exact opposite and misrepresent that? That's not the idea. Well, by contrast, true faith, what does it involve? Again, true faith involves not knowing and not needing to know. Because you may not know, but you may be desperate to know it all. So true faith means not knowing and even not needing to know. <laughs> but so often we make faith 
demanding to know and insisting that we do know all that in the name of faith. And especially for us Westerners, sometimes this addiction to certitude has been a product of the Enlightenment, the period of the Enlightenment that we know, which of course gave as a result important feats, such as science and medicine and so on, but also gave, we could say, gave us a right that, that we, should, we shouldn't really feel, which is a right to know it all, a right for certitude, a lust for certitude. <laughs> But of course, it goes further than that, because for Christians, for example, this goes to the very beginning of creation. We are not blaming only the Enlightenment here. <laughs> this is a pattern, a template that is depicted like every existence, so to say. In Christianity, we find the notion of the original sin, if you want to put it, use that term, which clearly is warning us against this temptation of knowledge, you know, the biting of the apple of knowledge of good and evil. So that also has to do with the idea of temptation of knowledge, the temptation of certainty that is there at this very inception of the manifest world. Again, the apple can be representing this certitude or the temptation to know. And probably God knew, we could say that God knew that religion may will take that direction. So at least in Christianity, God is telling, don't do it. Don't buy the apple. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so somehow God is trying to keep us from a lust for certitude. But of course, we generally, someone tells us, don't do that. We go and do it. <laughs> so here we are. So besides its external facade, of course, this quest for certainty is much more a search for, for control, as we mentioned. And it's not so much, I, I need to be certain, I want to know. In the, back, in the backdrop, actually, we want to control. It's not so much I'm in search of truth and love, but journalists, I want to keep control of reality. It has more to do with ego. Remember, ego needs to categorize everything to give, it, to give itself that sense of, I know. I know which label to put on everyone and everything, which category everything belongs to. And of course, if I know everything, the concomitant result of that is, I am in control. And of course, if I, I, I want to reach those layers more and more, I know everything, I control everything. This runs closer to the desire for omniscience and omnipotence. Knowing omniscience and omnipotence or you know, controlling everything, which are, of course, qualities that belong to God, not to us. So if we want to attain that, that will be basically a form of mayabad or impersonalism or us playing God, although we may not be saying that officially. On the leap level, if we are Godius, we, we may be claiming to worship God on a beyond leap level, indulging in this form of mayabad. So we should pay close attention. The modern educator Parker Palmer, maybe you heard about him, he will call this functional atheism, which is basically the belief that the ultimate responsibility for everything rests with it with us. We have, in other words, we are the ultimate controllers. We are the ultimate knowers. We are God, although we may not say that. So in, in other words, this implies being officially theistic. I believe in God, but you behave as an atheist. I try to be the ultimate controller. I try to be the ultimate knower. 
I'm trying to replace God by aspiring for absolute certitude, among other things. And many of us, in fact, continue to practice our religion while denying this pattern that may be there in some of us, at least on one degree or another. So the denial of this pattern that may be there while practicing spirituality <laughs> is kind of a practical daily atheism or, or chosen ignorance among many believers. So part of our unearthly ability stage is to pay attention to that and become aware of that if that's there and, and know what to do in that connection. Because let's be honest and let's be realistic. At least in general, most of us are control freaks. I'm not free from that club. I'm not an exception to that rule. And most of us are control freaks, even in relation to the Supreme Controller, <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing, but that's how it plays. To be a control freak means that you even want to control the Supreme Controller. You want to replace, you want to be that even though you cannot. And so part of our Gaudiya notion of sobriety will come from Saranagati. Our Gaudiya notion of Saranagati, surrender, has to do with, I do not, I'm not in full control. I'm not the supreme knower. Allowing this sacred uncertainty, this divine ignorance, to nourish our faith and not insisting upon perfect and absolute answers at every single moment, but being willing to coexist with unresolved questions. Of course, some question needs to be answered, and I don't want we don't want to use this as an excuse. No, every question comes just coexist with mystery. I cannot reply any of your question. That's not my point here. I hope you understand. <laughs> so Saranagati saying that Rakshisha to be Krishna's maintaining, Krishna will protect me. I don't need to control everything and to figure it out from beginning to end. I have to trust him doing his work and I have to do mine so therefore yeah let's be patient toward all that is unresolved in our heart and also let's try to love the questions themselves not use the question as a quick short bridge to get to the answer try to fall in love with the question and probably perhaps if you do so gradually even without noticing it you will be living along into the answer the falling in love with the question will reveal the answer. You get your answers, but first loving the questions. By first falling in love with the questions. So you get a deeper certainty, if you want to put it like that, by loving uncertainty. If you fall in love with certainty, that will give you a very flat, superficial sense of faith and certitude. If you go to the realms of the unknown, deeper certainty comes by loving uncertainty. Richard Feynman famously said once in that connection, he said, I would rather have questions that can't, cannot be answered than answers that cannot be questioned. Yeah. You choose. The first is healthy faith, questions that cannot be answered. The second borders totalitarianism, questions that answers that cannot be questioned. Which one do you want to choose in your life? It's time for us to also pick a choice, pick one over the other. So let's go to a few words of conclusion before wrapping up. So 
having said what we have shared today, of course, the totalitarian voice that sometimes manifests inside of us or outside of us will say, in essence, to all of this, you must rely on faith in what you already know. Well, well, totalitarian voice will make synonymous between faith and certainty and certitude or certainty. You must rely on faith in what you already know. Don't trust what you don't know. But that is not what saves, we could say. What saves us is the willingness to learn from what you don't know. I'll repeat the line because I think it's an important point. What will, what will save us is the willingness to learn from those things we don't know, not from whatever we already know. That's to, to, to learn from what we don't know. That means to have faith in the possibility of further transformation, faith in the sacrifice of our current self for the self that can be, for who we are in potential that lies waiting for us in the unknown, in the line of uncertainty. We shouldn't sacrifice what we can be for what we are. Follow. Don't get too certain to attach with what you are. Try to go to what you can be. Especially if you had a, a glimpse of your prospect. We cannot stay where we are. We should run to where we can be as much as we can. And again, when we speak about prospect and potential, our potential is always tied to the unknown. Again, to the idea of uncertainty, the potential that lies there, not in the comfort zone. The realm of possibility means the realm of something that can happen, but I don't know. I have to go there. So we should learn how to embrace it. So uncertainty is not a torture chamber. <laughs> uncertainty is a breakthrough portal. We have to learn to relate to these realities in the proper way. Therefore, a gradual, to gradually attain such prospect or to even attain a glimpse of that to begin with, in the beginning, we will have a faith before doubt. It all begins there. We, in the beginning, conceive doubt as the opposite of faith, and faith has to be totally eliminated and have to have faith in something. But eventually, we will need something else, what we may call not a faith before doubt, but a faith after doubt, a faith that will be nourished by doubt, where we will, having, we will have not only integration of complexity, but even integration of perplexity, we may call it like that. That's part of doubt. Doubt will create perplexity, and we need to integrate that, not to reject that. The journey of doubt through this perplexity will involve a lot of questioning, a healthy questioning. Again, questioning not only specific even dogmas or beliefs, but even questioning the whole belief system approach to faith at certain stages. Not questioning the, the integrity of what, whatever we are practicing, but questioning our approach to that, our level of approach to that. Again, by this, we are not... We are not promoting to doubt about the realness of our tradition, but how realistic is our current approach to it? It may have helped us for years, and now it may be out of date and in require of further upgrading. How much our current approach needs to be actualized, upgraded by uncertainty. <laughs>
we allow that to happen, this will allow us to go again from a two-dimensional, a one-dimensional faith to a faith that will be more nuanced, to a faith that will be more vibrant and textured, so to say, and sustainable. And sustainable. <laughs> As we always say, for those who may be having even a faith crisis by whatever reasons and whatever stage, it's not about so much I need to leave Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but we may need to leave a certain form of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, a certain way we used to understand, to take Gaudiya Vaishnavism for granted. We may need to leave that layer, that stage, to embrace a new layer of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And that involves entering the land of uncertainty, embracing doubt, allowing doubt to nourish and brief our faith. So anyhow, some words, I hope that can help and it's clear so we will conclude our presentation here today and a brief homework for those who will like to further embrace the realm of possibility to try to take some time to reflect about your own personal stance towards uncertainty towards doubt in connection to faith and the role of doubt again in nourishing your faith try take some time to think what's my stance in connection to that how much do i allow doubt to nourish my faith, in which ways, in which ways I may need to do it. So try, and try to think which steps uh, you can take, you should take to improve your present situation to reach the next level of potential that is waiting for you. Mm -hmm. So we'll continue next Tuesday, second part of Divine Ignorance series, uh, where we'll be talking about knowing through unknowing, paradox and chaos which again, we'll, we will continue talking about the same theme, but addressing it from different angles through different terminologies because we have an ending, sometimes defense mechanisms, so we may need equally an ending ways of trying to address one same topic. So at least one of those ways can really enter our heart and create the necessary transformation. So see you next Tuesday. Shri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, Shri Gaudhari Ki Jai, Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Divine ignorance ki jai, and gold bhakta vrinda ki jai, gold praman and haribo, panchakal patarubias chakri pas and dupiavacha, patitanam pavani pure version of ipunamonam, ananta koti version of vrinda ki jai, gold haribo.